we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. This is Jordan Vaughn with America Out Loud Pulse. And for this week's episode, what we are going to listen to is an interview that Cheryl Atkinson did with me over the clot factor. So given this, enjoy Cheryl Atkinson's interrogation of me over what I am doing. Hey, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours, one of our most important investigations to date, looking into the emerging and sometimes debilitating after effects of COVID and COVID vaccines. If our government hadn't been so conflicted, meaning tied into the pharmaceutical industry and its propaganda, then as soon as COVID was recognized, the government would have mandated collection of data to help understand if repurposing existing therapies, as was always considered the fastest and most efficient way to try to fight a novel virus, if repurposing hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin could help prevent or cure COVID. Likewise, if the government hadn't been so conflicted, meaning tied into the pharmaceutical industry and its propaganda from day one of the experimental COVID vaccines, They would have been mandating ERs, hospitals, and doctors report every illness after vaccination, which vaccination, how long before the illness occurred, did the patient also get COVID, and so on. This is a no-brainer. The fact that none of that data was collected is a tremendous tell about our federal agency's motivations. And it's why right now, when we should have a lot of answers, we just have a lot of questions. And Only a few independent doctors are really on the cutting edge of COVID vaccine injuries that can occur months or years later, or the long COVID illnesses, which are very much, it turns out, like vaccine injuries for many and can emerge months or years later, too. Well, one of those independent doctors, not controlled by the government or the narrative, is an internal medicine physician and researcher in Alabama named Dr. Jordan Vaughn. And on our first episode of Full Measure this season, Sunday, September 10th, we have a very important investigation about what Dr. Vaughn and others on his team are doing to sort through the mysteries that the government should have been solving. This is information that could help all of us at some point, and he'll explain why. Here's Dr. Jordan Vaughn. There are not that many researchers like you doing the cutting-edge work on COVID and COVID vaccine after-effects and so on. What is it that you're spending time on that would be interesting to people today? Well, I think mainly just that uh, the reality of what this virus, as well as uh, the spike protein, which is, the again, the, the word you'll probably hear me say a lot, um, has wrought on the vessels of our body. And it's specifically also related to the coagulation system. So fancy word for how your body stops bleeding or makes clots in response to inflammation or damage. And it does things in a very unique way. And I think that is 
one of the fundamental things that is missing from the common physician's understanding of why we are seeing so many different pathologies than we usually do uh, when we talk about what has been proclaimed as an upper respiratory virus, which I will go ahead and tell you, Cheryl, that it is not uh, just an upper respiratory virus. It is uh, commonly going to enter there, but in terms of what it does to every system in your body uh, is uh, quite um, quite disturbing and quite different than anything we've ever seen. At least that it's sure affected a large amount people, of people. I'm sorry, to make sure people up front understand and always correct me if my emerging understanding of all this is imprecise or wrong. A lot of what you're saying about COVID and the spike protein that is injuring people with COVID is true of the COVID vaccine, which instructs your body to make the same problematic spike protein. Is that is that right? A hundred percent. And actually, you could argue that one of the things that was done with the spike protein in the vaccine was to add uh, two prolines, uh, which are a fancy word for these little, you know, little acid-based pairs, a little at the one point in the spike protein to keep it in a, what we would call pre-confirmational form. And so that means that what the designers of the vaccine wanted to do was it to expose your body to the spike protein for longer and not have it degrade as easily so it could produce more antibodies. And in some ways that makes sense from a immunological perspective. But given the fact that we now know that the spike protein is the enemy and is the true pathogen, it is uh, not doesn't make much sense now. When we um, discuss all of these things, I encourage people to think about another large controversy, which is the origins of COVID, whether this was perhaps being designed on the part of the Chinese as some sort of bioweapon. We know that they are working on various kinds of targets and bioweaponry that acknowledged as much. And of course, that's just been long been true, wouldn't be unusual. But um, at CherylAxon.com, under the Vaccines and Health tab, you can see the investigation I did that has all the citations and documents and grant numbers that talks about our officials concluding early on, those closest to examining um, COVID-19 when it first came out, they concluded quite quickly, although it wasn't reported well, that this was the result of man's intervention. And as people hear you talk about what the spike protein does, and as persistent as this illness has been globally, like nothing we've ever seen, it certainly continues to raise the very real possibility that this was being engineered for some specific purpose um, that was nefarious. But that's just to get people thinking as they listen to you how unique all of this stuff is. Is there a way to explain briefly what a spike protein is? Um, I don't want to get too in the weeds, but for people like me that aren't, you know, as clued in as you are to all the scientific stuff, how can you explain what a spike well, protein in a virus is? Yeah, everybody has probably seen the animations of what, you know, it's probably even on TV and stuff, what the SARS-CoV-2 virus looks like. And if you're talking about those little things on the outside that look like almost little, uh, you know, stakes uh, in a sense, 
that have little crosses and entry points. They are, that is what the spike protein is. So again, they are a protein that is on the surface of the virus and it's actually responsible uh, for uh, the ability for the virus to enter a cell. So it is the thing that latches on uh, uh, to the any mammalian cell, uh, especially at the ACE2 receptor, which is again, something that humans seem to have a good uh, a bit of in their bodies. It's one of the ways we control hypertension and those kind of things with lots of drugs like ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers and those kind of things. So it's involved in the vessels, uh, but it's also involved in the, the lungs uh, and the heart. But that is the way that it basically engages with uh, the cell. And it is uniquely uh, has some of these what we call fern cleavage sites uh, that are one of the things that kind of point to the fact that it was man-made because there was never a fern cleavage site that was uh, in a, uh, a spike protein previous to this thing that just kind of came on the map uh, in the you know fall and winter of 2019. And that fern cleavage site allows it to utilize that ACE2 receptor to enter the cell. And when that became possible, that's when this thing turned into something that humans could uh, not only you know, be infected with, but also could spread and share with other people. Is a virus a group of molecules? So a virus is interesting. You know, I would say the viruses themselves are one of the things in medicine we still, first of all, don't even agree if they're alive, but they seem to act in many ways like they're alive. They seem to act uh, as if they communicate in some ways. But it is basically a bunch of proteins that are designed uh, to uh, replicate themselves and propagate themselves forward. So it basically, a virus is is, is a a, a molecule in a sense, or basically a bunch of proteins that their whole design is to get inside a cell, hijack the machinery of that cell to make a bunch of copies of itself so it can go and infect other things. Now, before we talk a little bit more about the meat of the amazing work that you're doing, um, can you tell us how you got involved? You were in a practice, which I visited, there will be a report on an upcoming edition of Full Measure in the coming weeks that includes you and some of the work that you've done. But I visited your clinics and met your dad, who I believe you said founded the whole situation, which you've now become CEO of, and it's a big operation. You have a whole team. But how did you get involved in looking at these questions about COVID and COVID vaccine that seemed like few mainstream doctors were really looking at? Well, I think first started that, you know, obviously when the whole world was told to shut down uh, as a CEO who has about 200 employees and 20 doctors uh, that work for him, uh, I was uh, forced to kind of gather information about how we would address this. And so, um, as first of all, as being an outpatient practice, uh, for the most part, that was also uh, very focused on healthcare delivery. You know, I was trying to find the best way to continue to care for my patients with chronic diseases, as well as take care of people that were acutely ill. So I approached it as kind of a healthcare delivery expert with kind of an engineering background that said, OK, we have this thing thrown in the mess. Let's see if we can find answers to continue to serve our patients and also continue to serve the people that were sick. What was interesting was that when people got sick for the first time ever, um, we were told uh, by our uh, public health authorities that uh, there was no use intervening or helping them 
uh, until they could no longer breathe, and then they could go to the hospital, which was, uh, for, again, the first time that I had ever seen in my uh, understanding of medical interventions that delaying care was something that we were supposed to do. And just again, that that kind of led me to believe something something's amiss here. And then as uh, we further found things that might help, uh, those things were not only uh, not, you know, basically broadcast to other physicians and said, hey, this is a way we seem to think that there might be some evidence that this might help. Instead, everything at the central, what I would call top down level was we were told, no, 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 no. It doesn't work. Don't try it. Don't help. Continue to wait till somebody is, uh, you know, basically unable to breathe, go to the hospital. And then for the most part, what we found at that time was uh, we're going to put them on a ventilator, put them on this medicine that doesn't work, given that the virus is no longer really even part of the issue. It's more of the after effects and uh, the outcomes were dismal. Um, and so that that's really where I kind of started, you know, really digging my heels in and saying, all right, well, this just doesn't make sense. I mean, even if it is such an interesting and deadly pathogen, uh, why would it not mean that we need to be even more vigilant in trying to find and help people uh, early? And instead it was, you know, this kind of silver bullet that they talked about. The only way out of this is a vaccine, which again, there's plenty of uh, things that, you know, we deal with every day that vaccines are not the answer to. In fact, vaccines are very rarely the answer to something that is acutely in front of you. And actually rolling out a vaccine program in the midst of a pandemic, at least historically, was something that you shouldn't do because it actually usually made the problem worse. Uh, you might be able to vaccinate people once a pandemic is under control to prevent the next pandemic per se, but to do it in the midst of rising case numbers uh, just made, again, strain credulity in terms of your understanding of what viruses do. They mutate, they, sh they uh, shift, uh, you know, over time. And, you know, all you would do would be shoot the silver bullet that would turn into nothing almost by the time it was even out of the gun. And so, again, that's kind of a lot of, lot of, you know, but that kind of led me to question this whole narrative. And the thing that really brought me to the vaccine questions was I, that summer, had gotten a an uh, orthomolecular machine uh, or the clinical machine that basically allowed me to look at the antibodies of my patients. So I was going out and looking at, uh, I was helping some businesses uh, kind of assess to reopen, especially restaurants and those kind of things. These people that were basically on the verge of bankruptcy, I was saying, I, I will come out there. Let's do an assessment. Let's get some antibodies on all your people. See actually how many of them already had it. Uh, you know, because again, as a uh, Jay Bhattacharya has told us before, you know, the actual seroprevalence was way higher than anyone expected. So there had already been a lot of people that had had this, uh, especially when you talk about restaurant workers and those kind of things. Uh, but then also just kind of writing a letter that said, basically, we can help this person reopen safely. So there is a job to begin with. And so as I was doing that and collecting all that data, I had about 7,000 people's antibodies that I was following from kind of the, you know, the spring of 2020, all the way into when the vaccine rollout came along. And as much as I continued to listen to the what the statements from the CDC saying, well, antibodies only last three months, maybe I had the craziest 7,000 people ever, and they were just not following the normal thing. But I literally had zero out of my 7,000 people that had antibodies drop over nine months. And that made me think, what the heck is going on here? And then as the vaccine rolled out, there was no concern on the fact that 
at least in the Pfizer trial specifically, the people that were uh, you know, in the trial were excluded if they had had COVID previously. And therefore, to me, the safety and efficacy data is kind of hard to apply to somebody who's you know, expressly excluded from that trial. And so when I raised that question on two grounds, one, well, evidently there's a shortage of the vaccine. So why don't why would we give it to people who don't need it? Second of all, how can I tell my patient that it's safe and efficacious if they were expressly excluded from the trial and I have their antibodies right here showing that they've already had COVID? And when I actually raised that at my university here locally asking those questions, the answer was, Jordan, it's a pandemic. And to me, that is not an answer. That is not even the question I'm asking. The question I'm asking is how to do the right thing as we've always done for patients, their unique, uh, you know, what they are as individuals and what's best for them. The answer well, is- Can I interject a, a point? Because I didn't know that about that part of your story or your background. But um, I covered a story, gosh, it's probably been two years now, that CDC was intentionally putting out disinformation, telling people that the original- vaccine studies, and this is not true, they knew it wasn't true, telling people that the original studies showed or proved that if you already had COVID, the vaccine was still a benefit to you. And at a time, like you said, there were there's not enough vaccine to go around. And if it worked purportedly, it was, there were a lot of people that needed it who were in risk groups, and a lot of people who didn't need it because they'd had COVID who were being told to get it. So when a Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky recorded CDC acknowledging this was false, their guidance was false, and what they had published was false, and recorded them really dragging their feet on wanting to correct the record and admit that what they had said wasn't true, that even days after they admitted that the information was false, their top scientists and officials, there's a webinar of them online repeating the same false information after they acknowledged to him they knew it was false. So this goes to the heart of the idea that this wasn't an accident, the false information that CDC was putting out, at least in that case. And it's pretty yeah. shocking. And, and it, it can, yeah. Even then, I think that's how that it bleeds down to physicians, because physicians assume that that is the case, that that would, of course, been studied. And so one of the reasons that, you know, one of the quick questions I would ask most physicians, even ones that were highly respected infectious disease, was, was uh, how many, I would always ask, how many uh, people with previous COVID were in the Pfizer trial. And if they didn't know the answer, then everything they said really didn't matter to me because they had obviously not even read the damn trial. Right. And so the problem started- is, is those are the people that should be reading the trial because their advice is what all the other doctors are following. And the problem is, is what the doctors didn't know <laughs> is that the advice they were following, either intentionally they were they were misinforming people or they were ignorant or both. So fast forward to your looking at these questions. And there were other doctors who were either trying to do the same and became controversialized for actually being right about this, all this stuff in hindsight. Um, Or there were doctors that were trying to do good work whose institutions wouldn't permit it. They weren't allowed to prescribe certain things or study certain things, which is a whole nother story. But you had the advantage of being independent. And tell me how it came to be where you started getting patients with these illnesses that other doctors maybe couldn't really diagnose or had misdiagnosed. And that led you to some really cutting edge research that you're doing right now. 
Yeah. So we first thing we knew was in acute COVID that there was no question um, that it was uh, blood clotting was an issue. And if you look through the data and look through a lot of the patient, what we call observational studies on patient admissions, what you found was patients that were on anticoagulants or other things like blood thinners seemed to uh, leave the hospital uh, unscathed, <laughs> meaning they alive. Um, and that uh, almost twice as likely to leave the hospital if you were on one of these things than if you weren't. Uh, which again, most of these people, when you think about somebody who's on a blood thinner to begin with, they're definitely, when we talk about, you know, how healthy they are, they're definitely not healthier than the person that's not on it, yet they're twice as likely to leave. So that suggested something very interesting. And I think that was probably the first kind of sign that something was going on. But one of the guys that I uh, was reading about, again, deep, di- you know, diving deep into the literature uh, was uh, Jaco Lobsher and uh, his uh, this kind of uh, PhD, uh, Risha Pretorius in South Africa. And what they were finding was that arguing actually pretty vigorously that this was not an airway disease, that this was a vascular disease and we needed to treat it as if it was a vascular disease. And the evidence for that was pretty obvious uh, that if it affected the vessels of the lung, uh, it would cause a hypoxemia or what we would call the same reason that everyone says, oh, I'm going to get a pulse ox to see if it goes low or, you know, declines. And if it goes under 90, yada, 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 you know, that I'm in trouble. Well, that was not happening because of the airway issues, but instead it was on the other side of your airways, which is where the blood vessels interface with the airway. And the problem with that is as those levels went down, if the problem was on the vessels in the lung, the worst thing you can do is increase the um, intravascular or what we call intrathoracic pressure, which is basically what a, uh, a ventilator does. And so again, leaving that to understand that, that's when I started saying, okay, we're going to treat these people in the outpatient world, make sure they're on the right things, have them treated appropriately early. And then six to seven days after they get diagnosed to when we already early treated them, find out if they had coagulation abnormalities. And then we would intervene uh, with anticoagulants or antiplatelets. And the amazing thing is our outcomes were incredible. Um, in fact, uh, you know, out of probably 17,000 people we treated, we're talking about, you know, single digit uh, people that actually had to even enter the hospital, which, again, is just utterly amazing. And, it, it you know, again, strange credulity of what was being told to us. Um, but in that cohort that we thought were the sickest, uh, when we intervened with antiplatelets and anticoagulants, what we also saw was those people not only got better, but they also got a lot better and had in improvements that some of the people that weren't as sick didn't get. And so that was one of the things that led Jocko as well as me to kind of sit there and say, well, is there vascular damage or is there clotting issues that are in these otherwise healthy people uh, that aren't as noticeable in the acute phase? But when they continue to try to get back to normalcy, uh, they start to see that they have had that issue as well. And so what we found was um, those people also, even though they weren't, you know, again, in the ICU or or being really sick during acute COVID, they were showing up three months to six months later and saying, look, um, I didn't really even have COVID that bad, but now my ability to do what I used to do is completely compromised. And some of the first patients I treated like this were college athletes. They came and they literally had objective evidence that their times... Uh, and the harder they worked, 
the worse they got, which again, kind of, you know, you could have somebody in their 50s come in and tell you that it's kind of hard to parse out whether, you know, there's some deconditioning, there's some, well, how healthy were you to begin with? But when you're talking about a 19 to 22 year old that now uh, their time went to crap, the only reason they knew they even had COVID was because somebody tested them at an event. And now the harder they work, the worse their times get. You know, there's something else going on. And that's what made us ask those additional questions. How did that overlap with the vaccine injuries that you also presumably began to see around the same time? So the same thing happened was when we started to have the rollout of the vaccine, especially as it was in older people, uh, there started to be a lot of older people that would show up that I had seen for a long time with significant shortness of breath and changes in their coagulation profile with elevated D-dimers and such. Um, And the interesting thing was they didn't have any crazy abnormalities on CT angio. It wasn't like they had huge blood clots. But instead, there was evidence that there was a coagulation abnormality going on. And the only thing that was temporarily relevant was that they had had the vaccine within the previous couple of days. And so, again, when we talk about how you kind of make that assessment, it's that. And then as this goes further on, I start to see that Jocko and Risa published a paper that basically says if you drop the spike protein, which, again, is what we're talking about. Spike protein is both in the virus as well as uh, what the vaccine makes you make uh, that it actually causes uh, fibrin to form out of fibrinogen without thrombin. And that's a fancy word for saying it literally starts clotting without the necessary things for clotting to start just by dropping it in. So this thing on its own is able to do that. And it's not surprising when you match it up with the health outcomes in the hospital and the clotting abnormalities that they had. And you talk to anybody that you know, ran a, a dialysis machine in the hospital, they will tell you this is the clottiest thing that ever seen. But the interesting thing was the spike protein itself can cause this on its own. And that is the the fundamental thing that makes it so um, really, I mean, such a pathogen, such something that's causing damage. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution. And now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. 
with known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. In 2008, people could spend an average of 12 seconds on a task without becoming distracted. Five years later, it was only eight seconds. The digital age is narrowing our attention span. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top, shoot it down. Thousands of five-star reviews proves it works. Supercharge your brain and see the difference. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Well, let me insert here, again, correct me if this isn't right, but you talk about clotting and I think people think of, and maybe doctors listening think of things that they could normally see on the regular scans or imaging that they do, but that might not be the case from what I understand when we're talking about um, these kinds of clotting issues, they would be invisible to many physicians the normal way they look at stuff so they might immediately off the top of their head tell somebody you don't have any clotting issues or not even think to look for them in relationship to an illness somebody comes to them with. Yeah, absolutely. I usually like to use the metaphor that imagine that you're standing in your shower and nothing's coming out of your shower head. And of course you want a shower. So you call a plumber and say, hey, uh, I, I need to fix this. I mean, there's something wrong with my shower. And uh, the plumber comes over to your house and he stays out in your front yard 
and digs up your front yard and basically says, you know, digs up, finds your water main and tells you, you know, I don't know why you called your water main is completely open and then gives you the $150 bill and goes on his way. Um, you would probably fire that plumber, but in, in a sense, that's where medicine's diagnostics and their understanding is right now, is literally when you go and you're having an inside the house issue, the doctor for the most part is telling you that your big pipes outside are open. And that's the difference. And I think that's one of uh, the kind of sad things is that Met, you know, doctors are basically instead just saying, well, none of your big pipes are closed, so there's nothing wrong. And the problem is, is if your big pipes are open, but a ton of your small pipes aren't, you know, able to actually deliver red blood cells, you're going to, you're going to have a big problem and it's going to be multi-systems. It's going to affect the brain. It's going to affect your balance. It's going to affect your muscles ability to, to, uh, to work, your heart's ability to pump. Um, and so Another that's kind of, when you're, when you're talking about the big things being open, no big cl giant clots, but the little things being somehow impacted. Is it true that that could manifest in different ways in different people? So for somebody, it might be a big major health event. I mean, maybe that even could lead to some kind of stroke or something, but it could also be a lot of little events or could it be one little event, like a vision problem and nothing else or a, a hearing issue or a a voice issue, but really nothing else. Exactly. And I think that's even more evident as I started to get patients that would get strokes um, in the, you know, again, in their seventies or eighties uh, and they would go and they would have the normal stroke workup at the hospital and none of nobody, first of all, the stroke was usually in a weird area. <laughs> it wasn't in the typical area that you would find a stroke. It was, you know, in the thalamus or it was in the brainstem, you know, and it was in a very, very small vessel. And a lot of the neurologists were in, fascinated because they were like, well, where did the heck did this come from? How did they get an ischemic stroke? And how did this little thing get there? And the funny thing was, if you look at the data and if you look at the literature, the, the thing that's happening is called microthrombosis in situ, which is a fancy word for saying small vessel blockage or clot that happens right there. And so it's not something that has to come from anywhere. The actual COVID or the spike protein itself actually uh, changes the coagulation parameters right there in the vessel itself, damages the lining of the vessel and causes one to form on its own. And, you know, that's what we would call microthrombi or a microthrombus. And it happens right there. So again, they're looking for something that as a source, but the source itself is is either the COVID they just had or the shot they just took. And yet this could also happen, it sounds like, months to years later. Let's say maybe they didn't have a, did or didn't have a bad reaction at the time to COVID or the shot. Could they still be having yeah. a spike protein lurking in their system waiting for an opportunity? Yeah, that's what we're continuing to find. Actually, there's a research paper today looking at um, some basically vascular changes or vasculitic changes. And they did a biopsy in about 14 people. And it's full. The biopsies are full of spike protein in phagosomes. And so that's literally what's causing the damage. So it's it's like it's stuck there. It's it's uh, you know, it's not able to go places. So this thing is not only, you know, can uh, cause coagulation issues. It also seems to be able to lurk and stay in places and the body's really bad at getting rid of it. And I think that's one of the, the underlying things that I want people to know is a lot of the people that I take care of 
that um, have significant issues. Those issues don't develop until the thrombotic changes that the spike protein has made cause a continuation and eventually reaches a critical stenosis. And how I would look at that is when I talk to people, I usually try to make metaphors that'll help them make sense. But imagine that in the wall of your house, there is a pipe and that pipe all of a sudden starts shaking or making noises. Well, it didn't. And because it's blocked, it didn't just fill up that day. Okay. It filled up to a point that it reached a critical threshold that all of a sudden dysfunction is happening. And that's what happens in a lot of these people is it is the burden of debris that eventually catches up. The other thing is everyone has a different amount of reserve in their uh, vasculature. I mean, you could take me probably, and you could probably take one of my lungs out. Like, and I could probably sit here and talk to you, Cheryl, without one of the lungs because I'm healthy, young. Uh, but when I would go run a mile, that's when I would see the difference. But if you would do that to somebody in their 70s and 80s, they would see the difference just by sitting there. Does that make sense? So that's why a lot of these young people, it takes longer for the debris to develop, but also it takes them a little bit more trying to get back to normal for them to say something is significantly wrong. We had a lot more to talk about. I hope to do the more. Um, I'm not quite finished with you yet, but I want to tell people we'll be hearing from you more on Full Measure and hopefully more podcasts. I think this is such crucial information. Um, the, the people like you that are doing this cutting edge research that the government really should have done, been poised to do the moment the experimental vaccine was in use, the moment they identified you know this novel virus, but we don't have the data we should have. We don't have... They're not funding the studies that should be funded. And anyway, um, but for people looking for what to do now, if they think they know someone who could be sick with something like this, or they're wondering if it could be related to um, the problems that you're describing, how in the short term can people get help when most of the doctors they're going to see aren't probably going to be all that up to speed on this? And if even if they are, what to do about it? I think one of the most important things, and it's unfortunate that this has been revealed so uh, starkly in the last three years, is is you got to do your own research and advocate for yourself. So a lot of times, if you have a good relationship with a physician, you may, uh, by bringing in some information about symptoms and also even some papers or other things that other people are doing, or just even some tests that they may have not even thought about, if you have a physician that you have a good relationship with, they're probably going to be open to helping you try to figure it out. And I would hope that that's most physicians, but I will tell you that's not always the case. But if you have a good relationship with a physician, that usually is true. And I think that's one of the things that is, is probably the biggest thing people can do is go to places uh, like the FLCCEC and uh, get educated yourself. Uh, I think actually I'm kind of a libertarian myself. I think most people are smart. And a lot of times if you can, especially, and that's what I think Pierre and uh, Mobin, a lot of guys have been doing is we're trying to get it down to where even the common person can understand it so they can almost educate the doctor, not in a disparaging way, but asking a question uh, and seeing if they will be on board with testing some things and seeing if they're abnormal. Some of those things could be uh, you know, your exercise reserve, your six minute walk test, your uh, pulmonary function, uh, looking for things like elevated D dimers, elevated uh, transforming growth factor beta, all of those kind of things. And I'll, I'll probably share, I'll, I'll give you kind of a list of a couple of things that I 
um, that you might be able to, uh, you know, put on put on your site that just says, hey, these are some things that I, would be interesting because they're associated. I, again, I'm not saying that we know for 100% causatively that this is there, but I will tell you just on treating the people that we treated, I've got some things that seem to show evidence of damage and they're helpful in diagnosing. And so that's one of the things that I think is useful, but it's mainly trying to find that physician that understands and cares about you enough to realize that you aren't your previous self. And I think that's one of the other things that I would you know, advocate here is we got to get doctors back to being free to care about their patients. And I think that is one of the most glaring things that the, uh, the pandemic exposed, that in 2008, as much as uh, Barack Obama wanted to say, you know, you can keep your doctor. Well, even if that wasn't true, but you did keep your doctor. The problem is your doctor is not your doctor anymore. Your doctor used to care about you. Now he's controlled by some other entity. And that entity is probably somehow controlled by the government in some weird way, whether it's a corporation or some other health system. So we got to get doctors back to being independent and caring about their patients and giving them the liberty and freedom to investigate things. Because again, I mean, I'm just a, I'm just a internist in Birmingham. But the one thing that separates me is I'm able to ask questions and I'm able to take those questions and actually research them, find people and then help others and help patients with those answers. And instead, most doctors are restricted by some middle manager or some health system on their ability to actually care for their patients. It seems to me there are at least two categories of patients that could be listening now that if, if they're sick or having problems. One would be people who are being told, we don't know what's wrong with you or we can't find anything wrong with you. So that's one reason that they might want to be looking at these other potential causes. Number two would be, though, someone that is being treated, let's say you had a stroke and you go in and you're being treated for it. Does it matter whether it was caused by the spike protein or whether it's just an ordinary stroke in terms of treatment? Does it matter if the doctors are asking that question? It, it does. And, it, you know, there's no question in the literature that that is the case. Now, the problem is, is most doctors that are operating in the hospital system that were trained a long time ago probably aren't reading the most recent stuff on what makes the stroke from COVID different or the stroke from the vaccine different from the stroke that typically happens in everyday life. And I will give you an example. Um, you know, I, I had a one of my patients who's 84. Uh, he had had a stroke and then another stroke. And again, he, I, he was not my patient yet. But by the third stroke after six month period, and again, the the neurologist, Goodwill, meaning neurologist, was treating him as if it was 2019 or before and thinking that this was just some atherosclerotic or some type of stroke. But again, if you knew the patient, you'd be like, well, this guy's never had vascular disease in his life. He's 100 percent healthy. He never took medicines. Uh, why would this guy have three strokes in a row, except for the fact that, you know, he had recently had the vaccine as well as had COVID prior to that? And I, again, it goes to the point that you're talking about a very different stroke, meaning even what these um, even what these little fibrin or clots are made of are different than what they're made of when, it, when you're talking about you ate too many hamburgers uh, throughout your life. It's a very so different how you, how phenomenon. You treat that differently than the ordinary stroke. So you use more you, more aggressive things, understanding that the clotting is uh, is harder to break down. And so that's one of the other things that's interesting about the research that we do is we know the spike protein makes this fibrin appear 
out of fibrinogen without, you know, the usual mechanisms for it to be made. And again, fibrin being kind of the building blocks or what I would call, you know, it's more like the mortar of the clot, the thing that sticks the platelets and the von Willebrand's factor and everything together. And it's made in a way that it is harder for the body to break it down. And we know this because it's, first of all, it's amyloid, which means it's beta sheeted and it's and again, I used another metaphor. Imagine that fibrin that, you know, God gave us uh, to stop bleeding. Uh, it's, it's more like spaghetti that just came out of the colander that you can pull apart. But for the most part, it, you know, it's helpful until you need it to pull apart. But imagine that this fibrin that's made by the spike protein is like uh, burnt spaghetti with cheese in it that's stuck to the bottom of a casserole dish, okay? So you're gonna need more than just a wash of the dishes. You're gonna have to get the Brillo pad out. You're gonna have to get the soap out. You're gonna have, it's gonna be harder to get rid of this. And that's the difference. And so what that means and demands is we've got to treat it different. And lastly, before I let you go, your time is so valuable and I really appreciate you being here for the podcast. Can you just give people an example, and I just mean a line or two, of the types of patients you're helping now, like someone who's age 15 and had something happen, and you don't have to give all the details of what you're doing because I know it's, it's different, but just give people an idea of the variety of patients that you're seeing right now. Yeah, every everything from you know 15-year-olds that were passing out at basketball practice and not unable to complete a mile. Uh, that now after intervening correctly for the conditions that they had going on, again, they had been doing this for two years, uh, even as recent as March, they this summer uh, could play seven AAU basketball games in a row <laughs> and one third in the mile in, at AAU nationals. Uh, so again, uh, it, the other thing that I think is so rewarding about this is if you know the problem and you can you know, definitively get down to the problem. And this isn't everybody. Sometimes people have problems that aren't related to this, but, uh, and even more fun, that's trying to figure that out. But it's, if you get to the problem, you, these interventions and addressing it based on your knowledge of the new disease process actually have outcomes that are positive, um, significantly positive in that kid's case versus having to go get IVs before every game and his parents never knowing if he's going to pass out that game to now they don't even have to worry about it. All the way up to 86 to 87 year olds that, uh, you know, again, one of them was even a physician that sent, you know, thought that they were doing the right thing by getting vaccinated. And little did they know that they, uh, first of all, were, you know, making their, their brain not work that well, but also, uh, you know, in their interventions, were able to reclaim their ability to think and do things that they wanted to do. And I think that is the, the breadth. And anywhere from women uh, having extreme menstrual issues to uh, significant, um, what we would classically have called POTS, but, you know, uh, from runners that used to be ultra marathon runners to who are now um, sitting in bed, unable to stand up without getting dizzy and barely able to go to the bathroom. That's the kind of dysfunction that we're seeing. And I'd say the biggest problem is that for the most part, if you talk to every one of these, if they have seen somebody prior, first of all, they get work, they get million dollar workups and that's fine. That makes it easier on me because they've kind of ruled everything out. But the other thing is they've been told that it must be not medical, not physiological, meaning instead of doctors saying, we don't know what's wrong with you. Instead, a lot of physicians are saying there's nothing wrong with you. And the reality is that is ridiculous. 
So no physician can tell you there's nothing wrong with you. You, you know, they can tell you they don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, but to say that there's nothing wrong with you, especially when it, the evidence of dysfunction and evidence of life change is right in front of their face is is a bit disconcerting about where they were taught on how to talk to patients. I've, I've interviewed, I've spoken with, for other stories we'll be doing, patients and even child patients who are paralyzed and were initially sent for psychiatric counseling because the doctors couldn't diagnose what was wrong with them and told them it was all in the head. And it turns out they had horrible medical problems that were finally diagnosed. But initially, to be told that it's in your head, you can imagine how awful that is for, for people who are sick. And I worry about one thing. This will be the last thing I ask you to comment on. When a young person, these people that are obvious, young person or very healthy person suddenly has this change in health status, I suppose they're more likely to be looked at as they could be suffering some unique problem from COVID, the COVID vaccine. I worry about most Americans who are have some kind of chronic problem and or are older. And when they go to the doctor with these issues, if the doctor sees, oh gosh, this person is aging or already had a predisposition or already had a weak heart, I'm afraid all these people are being written off and suffering and, and maybe even dying because no one's going to be thinking about these alternate things that, that could help them. Yeah, I think that's one of the the sad things. I would, a quick story would be even my when I was had a long conversation with Risha and Doug one morning and I was sitting at my uh, parents' uh, dinner table after dinner just talking to my dad about what we were doing. Again, he's a physician, so we have fun just kind of talking about all this stuff. My mom walks in and says, I think I have that. And, and lo and behold, she did. So even my own mother, I didn't notice that, you know, I mean, she was a little bit more tired and stuff like that, but um, she, we were able to get very basic interventions to get her better, to get her back to where her energy level and her thinking and just, just overall was better. And she wasn't vaccinated. Uh, she had only had COVID uh, and, but COVID still wrote uh, her a bad, uh, a bad outcome and she needed that intervention. And since then she's been good. But I would say that's the problem is it's much easier at an older age to rationalize uh, that somebody's mental dysfunction, heart dysfunction, they're short, more short of breath oh, or grandma's just getting a little more loopy. But when you put it under what I would call the chronology of their disease. So that's one of the things I always ask people. I mean, I've had some 85 year olds that come in on four new blood pressure medicines. And I'm like, were you ever on blood pressure medicine? And they'd say, they know. And I said, well, when did you start needing blood pressure medicines? And then we'd look back and when they got their shot, their shot, their booster, their booster, I'm like, you see the, <laughs> and then when we treat them, they're off all their blood pressure medicines because they didn't need them to begin with. Um, but it does take, uh, it does take somebody who understands the possibilities of the damage that can be wrought. And the problem is, is the medical community has not been told about that. Well, you mentioned FLCCC, and that stands for Frontline Critical, yeah. COVID Critical Care? COVID Critical Consortium. And then on top of that, I, I do have um, a foundation that I've started recently called, it's really called, and I need to probably get a better name for it, but that's the foundation for long COVID spike protein and microvascular research. Uh, that's a mouthful, I know. But the goal of it is to really, again, I mean, I, I'm, I'm at least, I have enough resources that I'm able to buy expensive microscopes and and do things that really I just did because, you know, it's whatever, it, it sounds like fun thing to do to help my patients. 
Um, but I do have those resources. But to do trials and to do the things that will change um, the the landscape of what the medical community will look to as true evidence, doing those trials are not cheap. They require money. And for the most part, a lot of our interventions that we do aren't anything that's patentable or or the, you know some pharmaceutical company is going to make a lot of money on. So therefore, uh, if the NIH isn't interested and pharmacy isn't interested, you got to do it on your own. And that um, that you know, again, billions and billions of tax dollars for this. Surely, at least a teeny little bit, the government had the foresight to set aside to do this kind of research. I mean, I say that with a bit of sarcasm because I bet they didn't. Yeah, they didn't. And even the even the study that they currently had. The recovery, uh, it's called recover trial, not the recovery trial, recover trial. It's basically almost done most of the data out from it's, it's somewhat interesting. It's not, I mean, I think, again, I haven't gotten to all of it. Some of it's useful for me, uh, but they spent $1.2 billion and they have had zero treatment arms of the trial. And so literally they have taken labs, talked to patients and almost gaslit them. Um, sent them to psychotherapy, sent them to <laughs> see psychologists to see how they can plan their day effectively. And I, I, this is not, I mean, again, I'm not making this up. This is what happened. And they have not even had an intervention trial. And so for two years, they've been, uh, they've been watching and not actually had, again, anything that they want to intervene on. And I think at the end of it, my biggest question is why? And I think the question might be answered by uh, that if you're not allowed to look at the spike protein as a pathogen, uh, you're really going to get nowhere in understanding this disease. If people want to help you considering the reality that if there's not a lot of money to be made by some treatment, it's just not going to draw a lot of funding, but someone wants to help. Is that an easy way they can figure out how to contribute to your foundation? Yes. Well, I would probably go to my, uh, my my company's website and pretty soon we will have a website up for my foundation. I just got approval for it last month. So I, I'll, I will update you on that, Cheryl. But I actually have a, a lady uh, I'm meeting with in the morning to actually get the website up and going. So I, I, I hopefully will be able to up you, update you with that. Uh, right, and then I'll put that on my, I'll publicize it and also put it on CherylAckison.com and make sure uh, people can help if they want to, because people, there are people out there that want to encourage this kind of, um, you know, groundbreaking, important research that should be done and isn't being funded, um, at least in a very public way by the government as of now. And and I will tell you, Cheryl, the, if, if the funny thing about life is that you, you end up in things that you would have never expected. But, you know, when I went to med school, I had no interest in being a big researcher or having my eyes under a microscope. And unfortunately, that is where <laughs> I my my life has brought me. But it's, again, guided there by kind of a desire to help people that are suffering. And I think that's that's the biggest thing that we found is so many people suffering and so little people, first of all, have even an idea of the suffering. Second of all, have have even offered help, and third, know how to help. And I think we've got to change all those things.